Welcome to the Crazy Wisdom Podcast. This is a show about why people do the things they do. Now, it isn't quite obvious to anybody why they do the things that they do. Uh, It's not obvious to me. It's not obvious to you. We can come up with rationalizations about why we do the things we do, but it's not at all obvious what the answer to that question is. But I do believe that through conversation, uh, usually one-on-one conversation, we can come to a mutual realization of a higher truth rather than the truth that our mind tells us is the truth. So this show is about this dialogue, a very, very ancient practice. It's been going on for a very, very long time of coming together with another agent, another person who has this awareness and coming to the truth through mutual inquiry. Inquiry. There's a lot of different themes that I talk about in this show, but the show doesn't have a theme. There is no specific thing that we're getting to with this show. Uh, We're discovering the truth in process, and you as a listener can also play in this discovery, in this mutual discovery, uh, because I don't think it's only in this one-on-one conversation we have, but it's also a global collective conversation, as long as we have this intention to aim towards the truth. So if you do want to join this conversation, I'm on Twitter, at Stuart Alsop, I-I-I, and you can just tweet out to me questions, you can tweet out to me things you don't like, things you do like about this episode. You can also send me DMs. My DMs are open. Uh, And just join the conversation. I'm constantly asking questions on Twitter, so you can answer any of those questions as well. Uh, And if you do like this show, please find us on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, any of the other major podcasting platforms. Uh, And go ahead and subscribe. And if you're really feeling generous, go ahead and leave a review as well. So come join us on this Discovery for Truth. Uh, and it's fun. We, we can get to the, to, the, to the really juicy parts of life uh, as long as we don't have an agenda, uh, and, well, except for the agenda to find the truth. Uh, so welcome on this discovery of truth, and come join the process. Welcome to the Crazy Wisdom Podcast. My guest today is Max Brody. He is the co-founder of Scent musician, writer, and a philosopher, and really excited to have you on today. Welcome. Excited to be here. Yeah. So what is Scent for those of my listeners who don't know? Scent is sort of a new, a, a, a new generation of how income and uh, the internet and social networking can work. And so what it is, is we basically let fans invest in creators that they uh, really love using this really simple mechanism of basically fans identifying creators that they enjoy through their work. And when I say creator, I mean um, sort of a, <clears throat> a broader term than artists, like anyone who writes anything, anyone who, who video creator, and they can find them and they can essentially give them money. We, we call it, uh, we've called it seeding up to this point. We're actually uh, about to introduce a new structure called spotting. But the essential idea is you give them, say, $5 a month. And then you get a percentage as a fan of all the money that's given to them per month after you. So uh, it's what we call an incentive structure. So it, it basically creates a behavioral dynamic between the creator and the fan where the creator, uh, sorry, where the fan is incentivized to do whatever they can to get the creator more fans because if the creator gets more fans 
um, the fan themselves makes more money. And so along with the creator making more money. And so we've um, uh, just kind of spent a long, t- I've spent a long time personally thinking about sort of what the, the ideal uh, behavioral financial relationship should ideally be in the future. And this is, uh, this is sort of our crack at, at, uh, at what, what we think it should be. But we actually started, we started with other incentive mechanisms. Like we still have another one that we call bountying that we're about to uh, rebrand as what we call sparking. And that idea is just you can like attach a financial reward to any post you make on the network. And uh, people are incentivized to reply to that post and the best replies get the money. And so again, just sort of creating, uh, somehow injecting money in the right places to make the, the, the ideal situation for, uh, for everyone. And this is interesting because it, people have been onto this for a while now, you know, with micropayments and stuff and what you just described with the bounty, it sounds just like a micropayment. Uh, but, um, uh, and, but the, the thing you just described about incentivizing fans kind of reminds me of, 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 uh, people promoting Bitcoin on Twitter, uh, because, uh, you know, they, they have Bitcoin and they want other people to have Bitcoin. So, so they, uh, so they, everybody likes it. And also there is some interesting stuff beyond behind Bitcoin, which makes it interesting. So, uh, totally. And that, that was actually a big motivation in, um, in just sort of seeing that, that, that sort of a natural behavioral outcome that people buy Bitcoin and then they get all Bitcoiny, you know, and then they, they start and, and it just always struck me like, what if you could apply that same sort of like psychological scaffold to, to, you know, a, a person who's just like, you know, making really great songs or like, you know, the same idea where you're just sort of invested and now you're evangelizing. And so where, where did, when, when did it make that switch from, we're just going to do micropayments to we're getting incentivized. What was the story behind that? Um, so backing up a little bit more. So before sent, I was actually a solo founded a company called Penny and um, Penny was pre crypto. It wasn't uh because, uh, by the way, Scent is on Ethereum. We sort of are, um, right now we're sort of, uh, we, util- we utilize a lot of crypto technologies to make it happen. And the reason for that is because when I was starting this, this penny company um, years ago, uh, that idea was basically a network where instead of, it, it sort of felt like a normal social network, but then instead of clicking like like or upvote or plus one, uh, you'd click the little button on the post and it would give the person one penny. And the idea was it would, all the little micro payments would, would pool into, you know, a significant amount. Our little tagline uh, uh, for that was, uh, you know, a million likes is a million likes, a million pennies is $10,000. Like it turns <laughs> it into something. Um, but anyway, so with that, I, I, I built that with Fiat technologies and it was all sort of duct taped together. And um, uh long story short it costs like 33 cents to send a penny you, you can't do it um the but i, I tried every other bundle a million different ways to try to figure out how to make it work and uh and ultimately i was just looking for a way to to do a microtransaction and that was how i found ethereum uh and sort of we got more into incentive once i found ethereum we found smart contracts and smart contracts sort of like opened this whole door in my mind to oh we can like make people do certain things to get certain things. And um, still to this day, that's my, what I'm most interested in, in the whole mm-hmm. 
crypto world is just like incentive structures and, and smart contracts, much less so things like decentralization, which everyone else is, you know, all, all about. And this, I would love to have a conversation. We can get into the weeds. Uh, hopefully my audience likes talking about crypto as well. Um, later on, we, I yeah, we talk. can also not talk about that. <laughs> no, no. I, I mean, I, I enjoy it and I hope my audience enjoys it too, but uh, anyway, I want to talk about philosophy later on. Actually, let's, yeah, let's save the, let's save the, yeah, I want to, yeah. I want to ask you about Tezos versus Ethereum in terms of smart contracts, but we'll save that for later and we'll go into philosophy because uh, I love talking about it. And a recent guest of mine, I, I've, I've been having difficulty explaining exactly what I do on this show because it's kind of like in startups world, it's kind of, you know, philosophy, it's kind of all these different things. Uh, but this guest, uh, Leo Polovitz, he basically said you should, uh, really stick to the philosophy and the meta questions because everybody else in business is talking about the, right. the actual tactics or the, you know, the every, where you can find it, everything, but nobody's talking about this higher level stuff. Uh, so what does philosophy mean to you? Oh, uh, philosophy is probably just in total, like my favorite thing, like just of all of life's things. It's like my, the thing that I found that has, just hits a level for me that uh, that very few other things hit. And okay, so I didn't know what philosophy was before I was uh, 17. Uh, I didn't really get that it was like a, a subject. I thought it was like a, like just sort of like a, a way of like being like kind of questiony about stuff. But then when I got to uh, college, I took philosophy 101 and I had a really great professor and she totally blew my mind with with a, a, a few ideas that I just never thought of before. And, and it was just like, uh, I specifically remember one of the first week of that class, we were reading, um, reading Socrates. And I just had this moment of like, of like f feeling this sense that this sort of really background sense that no one ever really was saying anything. Or every, everyone was so blurry. Nothing was really being said. Everything was kind of um, so just, no one really cares about like sticking with what they're and then and then you read philosophers and they they're, they really mean what they say every word is chosen effectively like like it all builds up into a st clear structure and and it was just so satisfying on some level and um really in that first class i was like this is what i what i want to major in this is like what i want a big part of my life to be um and so i stuck with it and i was like uh i was a very passionate philosophy student um still am i still read stuff every day um and i, I think there's a I think people have different styles of mind and some people's mind is just really feels like uh, like to me a philosopher is like playing the they're, they're playing the actual game of like what's going on like what's happening and they, they're just like essentially everyone's just trying to uh, you know answer that and um, I think that there's it's, it's just so primal it's like the number one thing it's like even before like let's get food and let's get water it's like well, why like why continue <laughs> doing anything like i don't know there's like a sub question to to it all and so for me it's that it's also just um reading philosophers historically i think the word philosophy has changed it used to just mean educated person sort of and and so like and all knowledge was contained within philosophy and so um and so the best philosophers from history are really just the smartest humans that were living at that time and so you you sort of get this uh this uh it's sort of just this i don't know 
this injection of genius from just a variety of different eras that uh, I, I find pretty just rejuvenating in a way. So this gets into something really interesting for me, which is it's so crazy that we lost all of this knowledge and we lost all the philosophy and then it reappeared, although it remained in other places, but didn't really remain like nobody was reading it. It just kind of was in the library and stuff and, and it was lost in our collective understanding of what's going on. And then we rediscover it. And the thing that I'm really interested in, and I want to, I've been interviewing a lot of Western philosophers recently, and I want to start interviewing people in, who have a better understanding of Eastern philosophy, which is challenging because most of that was also lost in the popular conception in the East and was only rediscovered by the colonialists in India. Um, mm -hmm. and, and, uh, essentially, uh, wild misinterpretations, some of which were, were from Jung, uh, Carl Jung, um, and then, uh, uh, and then brought into the Western philosophy. So it's like a, it's a, it's, it's a very much a, a modern scientific understanding of, of the West. And now there's, there's still scholars who are translating a lot of these works. And so they're still not even in them. And what, like I've read one of them, uh, Christopher Wallace's, can't remember the name of it because it's a quite a long name. But um, uh, if you look up Christopher, anybody listening to this looks up Christopher Wallace. Uh, he has this great translation of one of these books and it just hits me like, uh, that is some powerful shit. And I think Jung actually said that uh, Western culture wouldn't be able to survive contact with some of these ideas, um, mm -hmm. uh, which is really interesting. Do you have any insight into, do you study yeah. philosophy? Yeah. So, so, I've had kind of a weird path. So my, my formal education was like in the Western canon. It was like, you know, um, you know, the ancient Greece, like the middle ages, like the German idealists up and through the postmodern, whatever. And the, uh, uh, that's really all I, that's kind of what I thought was all of philosophy. And then when I got out of school, I actually got really fascinated with a topic that's usually not associated with philosophy, but I think really should be because I, I think it's I think it's way more intricate and fascinating than people give it credit for. Um, but it's sometimes called hermeticism or esotericism or mm. uh, or the occult or something. I, I, I don't know. It has a variety of different, uh, you know, sort of ways of, of like marketing itself. But uh, to me, what that is, is it's the it's the it's the Eastern content. Uh, in the western voice but it was just not all publicly like mm. for for a lot of reasons christianity was like the thing and if you were not christianity you were killed and and so anything that was outside of that anything that was talking about um the nature of consciousness the nature of uh you know uh, developing certain capacities of consciousness um were, were were sort of very hidden and it was sort of only kept for certain groups for for a number of centuries, unlike in the East. In the East, I think it was more like, you know, you have the yogis, you have, um, you have, you have people that know that there, there are aspects of consciousness that can be developed. There's meditation. It's all these things that are part of the culture. Um, but uh, so I actually think that the Eastern uh, content has been in the Western world. It's just been very hidden. Um, and and there's certain people that try to do that crossover. You mentioned Jung. He's definitely one of them. Um, but there's other people as well. Um, uh, probably my favorite philosopher of all time, Nietzsche, did a lot of talking about how um, there needs to be like a, what's going to happen is we're going to have like what he called a European Buddhism. Um, mm -hmm. But the uh, uh, we we can go into that. But um, there's certain people that that sense that that 
there there's just two ways of going at the problem there's like purely logically or from the nature of being sort of that's how i think about it and then you you sort of get to the same place so and this is really interesting i imagine alistair crawley would have been another oh yeah love him and then uh madame blavatsky who is a very controversial who is a uh interesting story if you ever want to read a mind-blowing biography anybody who's listening check out madame blavatsky's biography um Mm -hmm. and but it's this brings up to mind this recent trend torn towards shamanism as well um which is itself an interesting story because the word shaman comes from russia uh to describe you know these people in the eastern siberian and then was then extrapolated to every other culture that was prehistoric essentially um, and then, and, and it's really interesting being here in Latin America because most people in San Francisco are like shaman. Oh, oh, that's from Latin America. That's from Peru. Um, yeah. and, but this whole thing just came around. It's like, all of it is from the 17, 1800s and our abstract conceptual understanding of what's going on. And then there's this repopularization of shamanism that's happening. And it feels related to that occult thing because, and I think a lot of people forget that in the West as well, there was a tradition of healing. There was a tradition of curandarismo, which they call it Latin American, which is like healing using plant medicines and all this different stuff. There was that tradition in the West as well as like clear. Um, uh, a lot of it was lost because of what you mentioned, because of that Christianity and because of the, the Inquisition and all these different things that were like, no, that's unallowed. Why? I, why do you think that people get so angry at these things? Why, why are they so angry and so defensive against the nature of being questioned? Well, I think, um, I do think a big, uh, I do think there is certain, uh, there's certain paths of knowledge that do genuinely make you a more free, powerful person. Like, like that, that when you see the world in a certain way, uh, the, the full nature of your um, creative potential sort of like dawns on you. And uh, that's great for the individual, but um, from the perspective of, of people trying to guide all the individuals in a unified way, it's, it's like a big chaos agent of like, I can't have, they don't want all these truly free people everywhere because it's like it would be impossible to deal with and so i think things that um uh, to me it's almost like one of the great i don't know whether it's like an inevitable thing or it's like one of the great historical evils but like the things that are truly liberating the ideas that like truly set us free i i don't think are are told to people at mass like i I think that they've been kept for a variety of of reasons and um i think part of it though i think part of it is, is if you are you know um if you're not, uh, I don't know, they would use all these religious terms, but even religious terms, like, like, okay, if you read some of this, like hermetic stuff, like the modern mind will see it and be like, they're talking about like demons and like, like, like they're going to, they're going to be like, this is crazy pre-scientific people waddling around. And, and the thing is, is that it frustrates me because like there was a, they, they weren't stupid. Like, like they were, they had a very nuanced understanding. And so when they say and there's a lot of words that we don't understand what they're referring to. Like, so when they say demon, for instance, they don't mean like some flying thing. Like, like they mean like a, like a, like a, mm-hmm. like a psychological complex, like a, like a something in your head, like a recurring thought, like a recurring negative emotion, or, or it's all about the human mind and like the nature of the mind and how we have, but they're basically personifying different parts of it. And 
um, I feel like even just that little key of just understanding that it's all just sort of personifying the mind in, in a variety of ways lets you read these books and, and you realize how insightful they are, like about how, how, how the different drives, how like envy interacts with, you know, guilt and like, and like all, all these things. I think uh, if you just read them on the surface, I think whether you're a, a, a modern person or you're just a person back then who's more traditional, you would think like, this is evil. I don't know what this is. Like, get this out of here. Um, so I think that's part of the reason. So it's a, f- a fear of, well, it, I mean, it's a fear, it's a fear of uncertainty, which often means a fear of death and, and, and maybe even fear of death of the ego, because for a lot of people, the ego is the only thing that exists. Um, and when you say ego, what do you, what do you mean? Good question. I would, so I would say psyche. Um, so it's ego psyche, some, this, this, this unified representation that I have of myself that is, um, talking with you right now that is, uh, that is forming ideas. And the real point that I'm making with this ego thing is that, and then any attack to those ideas is then a death as well of that, of that thing that I, that I think of myself. Is that, what do you think about that definition or is there another one? No, I will. So pardon me, my little, my little, you know, academic philosophy brain is basically that basically saying ego and then saying it's psyche. It's, it, it's not answering the question because it's just like stuffing it all in another word. Uh, but the, um, but the, uh, uh, what, one of my little like ways of thinking is that if, if you can explain it with like no words that are like over five letters, then like that's, you have a real definition. Um, but the, uh, I don't know. I actually, I've, I've been pondering the ego a lot recently because I mentioned before, I've had this, I'm in this really intense Nietzsche phase right now. And, uh, uh, and it's interesting because a lot of, you know, I, I feel like the, the, the common like meme is like transcend the ego. The ego's bad, like kill the ego. Like that's, that's the zeitgeist of right now. Um, but Nietzsche takes like a totally different path and he's like, no, like the, the point of, things is to you know blossom the ego make it make it uh you know the most colorful version of itself it can be like like a completely unfolded like that's your uniqueness that's the thing that's never existed that's that's what the world needs is you to just be very you um and i kind of i think i like that better there's something about the sort of hardcore almost like asceticism of like just like going and like departing from normal life and I, i've never fully jibed with i don't know it, it feels a little and the way Nietzsche puts it which i agree with is, is it's sort of life denying it's like it's like you're not you're not really like fully like saying yes to existence like you're you're like you're almost wanting to die in a way like you're you're, you're like um uh, you're, you're taking and stripping all the parts of yourself that are colorful and and just making them gray and i don't know I, t- to me I, I choose ideas based on what gives me more capacity and i feel like uh that sort of classical modern line of thought of just kind of separate breathe all day i don't know doesn't doesn't i don't know i'm not i'm not well and there is a paradox here because you can do both the the you can expand the ego and have this expansive consciousness and allow the ego to expand to fit the entire universe because ultimately it's not there's no separation between that Sure. But yet there is this thing that runs around and runs our day that is 
motivated by very, very animalistic kind of things, which again, there's nothing wrong with that, except there is something wrong with it if it becomes violent and, and um, kind of, but then, you know, that gets into the question of violence and, and sometimes violence is necessary, but there is this thing that manipulates and tries to, maybe this is coming from my own values, but that tries to always win every little thing. And the question I think that the transcendentalist found, which I think was partly correct. And when I'm talking about this is, is Patanjali and, you know, in the, in 400 BC in, in India, they like, they were transcending and they were like, the material world is sick. And so if I can go back to that part of me that is witnessing everything and becoming aware and only maintain with that, that thing that, that is the being, the nature of being and only be in that place all the time, then I can escape the suffering. But then I think they were wrong uh, because it has to come back down. And I think Nietzsche talks about this as well as um, uh, is that you, you then you, ha- you can't, you have these overwhelming experiences of ego and consciousness and just total union with everything but then you know you get in a fight with your family, and it's like, there's, there's, you can't just run away from that. You know, there's something there that is important for you. So I think totally. there's a paradox there. Yeah, there is. I mean, it, it's uh, it's tricky, and I love Patanjali. I love yoga. Like I, I do yoga more than anybody I know. Like I, I do yoga. I don't know six, seven hours a week. Like I, I'm very into yoga, and I find that yoga is, for instance, one example of a practice that um, is. It, it's still like. I think it does expand your consciousness. It does expand your like the like density of your awareness, but it, uh, but it doesn't, it, to me, it's not like denying your life. Like it's actually like, it's expressing your life more. Like you, be, you have a greater range of movement. Like you're, you're moving the body You're using it. Like, it's not like you're like starving in a dark room and like shredding. I don't know. There's like a, there's something about it that feels bright and good. Um, and I think, uh, I, I read Patanjali, and I, I, I very much am with uh, with I'm, I'm with yoga more than than other. I don't even know if you'd call yoga an aesthetic practice, but um, uh, but it's it, you're right. I think there is there's a space for both. I think the more that you the more that you say like uh, meditate, like I, I also I'm a fan of generally meditating. Like I, I think that's good, but I think the there's a point to meditating. I think that usually they say that, you know, there's a, this sort of energy of like, there's no point, just sit, it's it, stop asking, just go. And like the, and I get that, like they're trying to get you the, the mentality of, of stop, stop having to have a goal. But I do think there's a goal. And I think the goal is to then when you're not meditating to be more fully like engaged with the life that's, that's going on. Um, and, um, and then you use that, like you create great art, you build something in the world, you, you, you know, you make creative works, you, you whatever it is you do, um, uh, you should be using that. That's what meditation is for me. It's like a, it's like a, uh, it's like a building up of ammunition almost mm. to then use to do stuff. Mm. Do you meditate? I do. Yeah. Well, and we can get into that as well. There's one thing. Yeah. The, so in terms of yoga, it's really interesting. There's this great book from um, Mark Williamson, I think, uh, might've gotten that wrong, called The Roots of Yoga. Uh, and it talks about the roots of modern postural yoga. And so the yoga that, that, is, that, is, that is done in the studios is very different from 
what a yogi in India in the 1700s and 1800s would have been doing. They were actually considered by a lot of the middle class and, and upper class um, as black magicians uh, and, and were very much ascetics and were doing these poses, like would never sleep in the same place every night. Uh, and then with Madame Blavatsky had a very interesting kind of, um, she created this thing called theosophy, which I'm sure you're aware of, uh, would, but if my listeners don't, it's essentially a new religion that she started based off of the spiritualist movement uh, in, in France and the United States, uh, where you get mediums and other types of people. Uh, and so she, and then it became really popular in India, particularly among the upper class elite. And this coincides with the time that uh, yoga, or no, I'm sorry, uh, physical posture and physical wellness started to come into the collective understanding of the Scandinavians. Uh, and then, so they developed calisthenic practices, which then went to England. And then the English brought that to uh, the elite in the in India, and so the upper middle class um, Indians then took this calisthenic practice, merged it with theosophy, and created what we now know as yoga. And then mm. through people like Iyengar and other people, it brought to the West again, uh, and then created this kind of feedback loop that's still continuing to this day that we're still going through, which is this this kind of back and forth. So if we're in a yoga studio, we are most likely and most of the popular classes are mostly based off of a 18th century Scandinavian calisthenic practice mixed with elements of meditation that were only being rediscovered um, because the Bhagavad Gita was actually repopularized by Madame Blavatsky and Theosophists. Um, I, I believe, I, I want to check this one. I haven't checked this one, so I can't be sure that, that that's accurate, but I believe that Madame Blavatsky uh, repopularized the, the Bhagavad Gita as a main tenant of theosophy. And, and so, um, so yoga was very much a transcendentalist, transcendent practice from Patanjali onwards until Kashmir, India in the ninth century. Uh, there is this creation, which I think you would really enjoy based on uh, what you just said about, about, um, about creating and being part of life, because this is not a, it's the tantric lin lineage, but, this gets into a new nuance, which is it's not neo-tantra, which is the sacred sexuality practices. Nothing wrong with that, but it's not what was tantra, which was created in ninth century AD in Kashmir. And they was very much Im what they call imminent. So we, we have transcendent and then we have imminent and imminent is everything that's happening right now. And that, that, you know, they came up with this idea that the divine is imminent. It's right here. You don't need to go anywhere to do it. You don't need to go into cave. You can, you can experience it right here. And so now, since then, it's been a paradox, it seems, because you can't get to that imminent state without some of that transcendent stuff as well. What do you think of all yeah. that? Mm -hmm. No, I, I, uh, I definitely think that's true. I definitely think building up, um, like, like, okay, for me, one of the key words, there's like a few words that explain everything, essentially. And like, one of those words is will. I, I think will is a really powerful word. And um, I, I, to me, that's what meditation gives you. It just gives you will, like just straight up and just get more will. And then, and then you can use that will to do a bunch of things, but you, you have will over yourself. You have will over, you know, weirdly, I think you do kind of have a little bit more will over other people. Like, like you're, you're sort of, uh, there's sort of a, when you meet someone, mm. anyone, you talk to anyone, it's, um, and this is an idea from, I want to say Schopenhauer, um, but this idea that, all the all that's going on is it's just a bunch of competing wills everywhere, including down to like things that you wouldn't think of as conscious. So like 
you know, your, your, your heart is beating because your body has a will to live and like your, your, um, uh, you know, matter is moving because it has a will to mm. will to, uh, to chaos or a will to order. Um, and so will is what's happening. It's just that matter and stuff is like the, is, is the form that the will is using. Yeah. And, um, and so meditation is huge and, and yoga is huge because I think it gives you more will to do things. Um, and I think that's good. I just, I guess what I'm, I guess what I'm, what I'm realizing that I'm not so much a fan of is uh, there was this big turn, uh, I think, uh, at some point where we stopped sort of being like, we're here now living this life. Like, let's like, we are what we are. Let's just mm. be all we can be. And it all became about like the afterlife and the, the, oh, we're going to get all this stuff after we die. And like, let's just basically you know, starve ourselves and and do all these things that like, it doesn't, none of this really matters. The real world isn't real or the physical world we seem to experience isn't real. Um, And I think I get um, uh, Nietzsche's theory on why that happened was that uh, there were a lot of people that were enslaved. There were a lot of people that in a variety of countries, in a variety of uh, contexts, people were enslaved and that because they couldn't free themselves, they needed to basically invent a new way of seeing the world where aspects of, of, of sort of being held captive w- were seen as good. So like, um, so like things like, and he argues that all of Christianity is that. that like, like classical bad values made good and, and the classical good values made evil. So like if you were strong and powerful and now you're bad and if you're like, you know, meek, like there's that, thing in the bible like the meek shall inherit the earth i remember reading that and just being like what like like that, is, I, I, that makes no sense like i don't even know what that means and um and really wasn't until nietzsche that i that really clicked where i was like oh like and he calls it a more uh, a sort of spiritual form of revenge that people were taking where they could internally themselves they were like you're gonna you're gonna burn after we die so like they didn't have to actually you know fight the battle to free themselves right there um it was just sort of like in their head it's going to happen. And I think over time, the, the, the people that were sort of enslaving also sort of installed that morality in themselves too. So now everyone's running on this morality, I think essentially of weakness. And, um, and I think we're starting to see a shift and we're already seeing the shift, but I think more and more as we go into the future, um, uh, our morality is going to shift to be more and more in alignment with strength and um, the unfolding of self and like, just yeah anyway so what does what does strength mean to you um it means it means i guess it means a couple things it means one um having like a fearlessness in what you're going for like like to some degree, part of what I've gotten from all the hermetic stuff is that goals essentially are everything, like like intentions or like what you want or what you're going for um, creates a good and bad. Like like if you don't have a goal, there's no direction, there's no anything, there's no it, it's like there's no context for what you're doing. Um, and so, I think for me, number one with strength is like having a goal like an overarching goal that um, 
just lights you up and it kind of scares you with how big it is. I, I think that's, that's, that's one thing. Because I think a lot of people are scared to like have their real goal, like to secretly do the thing. And, and, um, and I think, I don't know. So that's number one. It's like ha- just having the fearlessness to have that, to have a, a real huge goal. And then I think it's really comes down to uh, not, not stopping when there's an obstacle. I feel like, I feel like it's not necessarily like you're just being, you're like very smart or you're very, you know, something else. It's, I think it's more just like not taking it so personally when like, you know, say you're starting a startup and like the first investor you talk to, like doesn't invest in you. You're not like, I don't know, like just get better, like do it, do it better the next, like, like there's a certain, that's what I've noticed with entrepreneurs too, is that there's a, there's this dividing line of people that they have something bad occur, whatever it is. And the reaction to it is like, okay, what data did I get there? Like, what, what, what could I do differently next time? Like, what's the, what's the game plan? And other people are just like, fuck. And like, <laughs> and like, I don't know. I feel like it's that if, if you have that, that, whatever that thing is of, of just seeing it all as steps on the path. Um, I think that's a form of strength. Uh, um, yeah, so I would, I would say, and this, this might be purely semantics, but I would say that that's courage. Um, and, uh, I definitely agree with what you just said about life seems to be, life seems to respond in a way that is commensurate with the amount of courage you have to look past the fear that all of us kind of experience all the time, um, some more than others, but uh, I, I agree. Yeah, I mean, courage, it's all related. It's all related. Um, uh, courage, strength, I, I think they feed on each other too. Like you do a, you do a little courageous action and you feel a little stronger and you, do, you get a little stronger, you can be a little more courageous. Uh, it's like a, everything in my mind is like an upward or downward spiral. Like as soon as you do something that's, bad it's easier to do another bad thing and then you descend and then like everyone doesn't like you because you're doing bad things and do good things people like you it's easier to get more opportunities and do more good things and so it's like you just want to be on the you want to be on the upward trajectory yeah but sometimes life throws you stuff and through no fault of your own or maybe i mean maybe it is there is just like catastrophe after catastrophe and it's becomes really difficult there is the random element to life where it's just it's 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 extremely difficult for some people oh. yeah go for it well so i don't know okay i'm a little extreme on this one because <laughs> i i feel like um even using the word catastrophe in my mind is you're, you're you're a catastrophe is not an event it's like a reaction to an event and so like like the, there's no fundamental objectivity that this was bad it's just like this occurred and and i think it's we're like meaning making machines. And so like, yes, the, the, a common, a common meaning making pattern to a particular thing could be bad and sadness and anger and guilt and all, all these things. Um, or it could not be, or, or it could just be that like one it's dope. You're still alive. That's cool. You know? Okay. That's a good base. And then it's like, all right, well this happened. Um, in what way is this thing a a capacity for me to increase my strength or, or or a way for me to to learn something i didn't learn before or like like i 
I don't know if there's any fundamental, um, there's this, I know, I'm, I know I'm just totally going back to Nietzsche every question, but, but he has this one thing, which is probably my favorite thing. I might get this as a tattoo one day because I just love it so much. I don't have any tattoos, but if I did, this would be it. Um, it's this Latin phrase that he calls uh, amor fati. And uh, what it means is love thy fate. Like just love whatever's happening to you. The fact that it's happening is amazing. Like, like, and I, and I feel like, I don't know. Like, like I've had even some, some uh, pretty like intense family stuff happen in the last two weeks. And my dad has to get like surgery and stuff. And it's like not great, but I think we're, we're all being like really positive about it. And I think that there's a, um, it, in a lot of ways, I mean, people say this a lot with when there's a, a when there's some sort of sickness or something that it, it can bring you guys, bring people together. And I think um, it's just, it's never clear to me that there's, that anything is objectively good or bad, even at the biggest historical scales. Like, I, I don't know, like maybe like classically we would say like, well, Hitler is fundamentally bad. And like, yeah, there's a lot of suffering, but in terms of where we are now, um, we might be like hypersensitive to, or we might be really not hypersensitive, but like correctly sensitized to people trying to attain power in that way. And maybe we've avoided vastly more death because that happened because now we're we're very aware of it and we squash it earlier and like i don't know it's hard to know but i'm just it's just it's unclear that there's anything that's like fundamentally catastrophic or, well um, yeah no and and as depending on perspective if you take the perspective of the universe none of this you know well, and this gets into you know whether the universe is conscious or not but uh from the universe perspective it's like billions of years like hitler's yeah, yeah. thing didn't it's like a blip. Um, yeah, yeah. And, and so this gets me thinking about nuclear, nuclear weapons as well, because we have never faced a time and a period of time where there's been a multipolar um, global order uh, and mm-hmm. traditionally multipolar global orders are the most unstable when it comes to war. We've never had a multipolar order since we've developed nuclear weapons. Uh, and we seem to be now entering a, a multipolar world with nuclear weapons. Uh, and, and it all depends on, well, I don't know what it depends on, but but it's very scary, nerve wracking for me. But then also one thing we've learned from nuclear weapons is that any state that gets a nuclear weapon is more peaceful. India and Pakistan the level of violence that happened between India and Pakistan since they both got nuclear weapons has gone way, way down. Um, and, but that, that black swan idea that the idea that something could happen that nobody's predicting is there as well. And for mm-hmm. me personally, it would be catastrophic that me and my family would be catastrophic to ca- uh, a catastrophe. If we were to enter a nuclear war, I would, I would not, enjoy that i don't think I, there would, there's any way that i could make meaning out of that at least when it comes to my 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 family and my and myself of and the in the world uh uh over whether that's a that's a catastrophe or not i think i'd be pretty clear on that although i would probably be dead so i don't know <laughs> i think it's i mean it's definitely a scary one i think of all the things that's that's the most you know like it's just so like a single person could just press a button and like, I don't know. It's a such, it's so much power. And so it's kind of unfair really, because it's not like that one person is so powerful. It's that they're sitting on centuries of, you know, work by people that didn't intend this to be the outcome of their work. But like the, um, uh, it's hard though, because 
um, one of my general critiques of modernity is that in certain vectors, we're very sophisticated. So we're very sophisticated scientifically, we're very sophisticated um, culturally, we're very sophisticated technologically. Um, I don't think we're at all sophisticated philosophically. I think we've, I think we've descended unheard of amounts, like in terms of just like, just almost everyone, I and mean, that sounds awful, I won't say that, but like the, I feel like that there's a, um, how should I phrase, there, there's, there's a, a, a nuance of thinking that I feel like that has become very rare or very um, just not, not seen as a worthy skill to spend your time on. Um, and in other ages, I feel like it was, it was, uh, it was the thing. It was the, th yeah. And so you would get these people that were great at it. And then I think, I think, I still think we're living off of the advancements that they made. Like, you know, like in those eras where the eras when we invented things like electricity and capitalism and the basics of computers. And um, uh, I, I think we're extending it now, but I think, I think we're also, um, uh, we're not actually as well equipped in a certain way. Um, uh, no one, no one spends any time reading old, really ancient books anymore, unless you're like an academic, but academics don't really do much outside of academia. And so like, I mean, that's too broad of a statement, but like certainly in the classics department, like you don't, you know, and so like the, I, I just feel like there's, there's, um, we haven't integrated yet. And so we're, we're not wise enough for the level of science we have. That's another way to put it. Like, like we're just, we're, we're like kids with like some big powerful power tool. And like, I don't know. I, I wish there was more energy being spent on getting us to be more, wise but it's really hard to do i don't i don't know how you make people wise at scale but um that would be cool so this is a really good question how do you explore this question of how do you make people wise at scale um and i think it's a relevant question because a lot of people who have been thinking about scale have only been thinking about scale recently um and then a lot of the people who have built these powerful machines and powerful technologies that have gone to scale are now kind of questioning uh what was it all for what does it all mean which i think is a common question because because of dopamine we always get to these stages of like i've now reached my goal what is the next goal it was meaningless that goal was meaningless because now i have a new one um so I have no idea how to answer that question. Uh, and I think it has something to do with all of these old techniques. Okay. Yeah. No. So if I analyze my own understanding to these, of these things, I have found so much benefit from technology like Google asking questions that are specific to my own personal experience and then asking Google and having this answer that leads me down this rabbit hole where I found this, per, you know, this person, an example is Christopher Wallace, like I went on this retreat, which I later found a meditation retreat, which was later, I later found was actually Neo Tantra hermeticism, kind of this mixture of things, uh, called itself a tantric retreat. And then through those terms, I then found, um, a, a Sanskrit scholar who was translating these things. And then he introduced me to traditional Tantra, um, and so all of these things are like, there are no barriers to it. So I think it's kind of happening in a way, but it's also dependent on the individual. What do you think? Um, yeah, I, I mean, part of it is like, first, I mean, again, part of me always is like, what are the words we're using? So like, we have to define exactly what wisdom is. 
um, and versus knowledge. And, and that's, you know, a tricky thing to begin with. And so, um, honestly, I've come to the conclusion that I, I sort of take back that question because I don't, I don't know if everyone's meant to be wise right now. I don't know. Like in the sense of, I wish the people that, that I think people have different types of capacities. So like not everyone, um, for instance, like you might have somebody that's a just transcendent dancer, like just like a beautiful, like, like the, the, in their, in their art form, they're just incredible, but like, they don't necessarily, that person might not have the, the, the most, you know, philosophically intricate view on things. But to me, like, that's okay. Like not everyone has to be the same type of, of brilliant. Um, it's more, uh, and I don't even think you'd be able to do that because I think that there's certain, specifically with what I think of as wisdom, which is sort of like a, the way Plato put it was that it's um, like basically that it's knowledge and being integrated. And, um, and I still kind of like that, uh, but still that like stuffs a lot of thing into what, what it's being. But mm. um, uh, uh, I think for me, it's, it's the people that, that would nor that are of that nature that, that are like, um, like, I think clearly, I think you're of that nature, but other people, maybe the people that you have on this podcast, like the people that sort of want to think about deeper things naturally and sort of get kind of a, a serotonin boost out of it. Mm. Um, I, I think in other ages, uh, it was very clear, like, so to speak, like what vegetables to give them or like, what's the healthy food to start with. And now I feel like we've lost so much of that, of that basic understanding of, um, like, like, I don't know anyone who's read Hegel. I don't know anyone who's read, like, I, who's really read, I don't know, I'm just picking Hegel as a random example, but like, just like people that, that, uh, they're just I, people in other ages spoke at a pace that was just different than our pace today. And so our pace today just can't, can't handle it. Like it's too slow. And so, and so we just don't read it. And, and I think that's really bad because like, it's, it's like, it's like a software update that we're like skipping. And so, and so we're, we're bound in my mind to, to, to stumble back into like, to go back to the Hegel example, to stumble back into some like pre Hegelian, problem that that we've dealt with 300 years ago but no one remembers because no one cares because everyone's watching netflix and and the and like i don't know i i, I feel like that i've thought a lot about that actually like uh, how how to somehow utilize the modern technological structure to uh, get the, the the essence of the content of all these thinkers out in a way that's like accessible to the modern mind and, and and i i'm sort of leaning toward it some being some sort of video type thing or maybe some i, I don't know but it really would it, it seems like a, a project i might play with later in life but the uh it's definitely been on my mind that that i don't think i would have read this stuff if i wasn't forced to in school but now that i have i'm very thankful that it's like always in my brain but the it, it's so hard to get other people to read this stuff because it's just dense <laughs> yeah um so this has been really cool. Uh, how can people find out more about you and find out more about Scent? Uh, yeah, so Scent is just online at scent.co, C-E-N-T dot C-O. Um, uh, our new version is launching later this month, so it's going to be pretty cool. Um, and then for me, I, I do a lot of writing uh, on Scent and elsewhere. It's just Max Brody. Uh, and I'll actually also be releasing a few songs to spotify uh probably next month and so um same same name just on spotify if you want to check that out um yeah thank you this is really you. fun yeah
yeah, it's been awesome. Okay. Hope you enjoyed this episode. I'll be publishing episodes every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday in the morning. If you did enjoy this episode, please find us on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, many of the major podcasting platforms, and go ahead and give us a review. And also subscribe. And as always, I'm on Twitter, at Stuart Alsop, III. Come join the conversation as we aim towards the truth. And the funny thing about truth is that you can't really put it into words, because every time you put the truth into words, create a linear narrative out of something that is non-linear the truth is non-linear it's not it's it's if you really recognize the truth right now your mind wouldn't know what to do it'd be overwhelmed by beauty and pain or it's it's something that is beyond our linguistic capability to represent but that doesn't mean that the language isn't helpful. Language can point us in the direct, right direction, but it's, it's, not, it's not the truth itself. And so come join this collective inquiry into the truth. Find me on Twitter, at Stuart Alsop, III. Uh, subscribe to the podcast. Share the podcast with your friends. Uh, most people don't have the ability to let go of this linguistic understanding of the way that the world works and just aim for the truth regardless of what the language tells us uh, and so i think what i'm doing with this the show is is necessary for us because as we enter this stage of uncertainty uh, and we are most definitely entering an age of uncertainty and as we do it's really really important that we stop paying attention to what the mind is telling us all the time doesn't mean to say that the mind doesn't have its place. The mind obviously has its place, but it's just one of the senses. It's just one of the tools that we can use. We can use the mind. We can use the feelings. We can use our actual senses. Uh, we can check our intuition with other people because sometimes the intuition tells us the wrong thing as well. Sometimes the intuition is wrong. So it, we can't we can't rely on any one tool to get us there. So come join the show. Find us on iTunes. Find us on Twitter, at Stuart Alsop, III, uh, and come join the, this inquiry for truth. <laughs>